Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 93, Mercantilism. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. One of the ways to support the show is to sign up for our membership feed, giving you a host of other episodes. You can access them by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can then send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com, or a tweet on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, and I'll send you the access codes. In our last episode, we rebooted the series, and our march towards the Seven Years' War by taking a zoomed-out approach. We begun by looking at the imperial system, as it was in the mid-18th century, the one which the American colonists would rebel against. We started by looking at the conservatism of the Whiggish governments, which was ill-suited to crisis, and then began to look at mercantilism, finally ending the episode by bringing up the infamous Navigation Acts. Today, we continue our passage from the Penguin History of the United States by Hugh Brogan. Quote, The Navigation Acts were many, and the system they established was never wholly symmetrical or thoroughly efficient. But their principal provisions, as set out in the Acts of 1660 and 1696, were clear and practical enough. Their purpose was to restrict the colonies to the functions listed above, and to monopolise the profits of the carrying trade. Indeed, of all forms of economic activity, so far as was possible, no foreigner should grow rich as a result of activities carried on within the English realm or colonies. Under penalty of forfeiture of ships and goods, it was laid down that all vessels importing or exporting goods to or from any English lands, islands, plantations or territories in Asia, Africa or America, or carrying goods from such possessions to the English realm, or carrying exports out of the realm, must be truly and without fault English, with English masters and crews three-quarters English. Foreign goods might come to the realm in such vessels only, or in vessels of their countries of origin, a blow against Dutch middlemen. Any ling, stickfish, pilchard, codfish, herring, whale oil, whale fin, whale bone, whale blubber, etc., imported in foreign bottoms, shall pay double aliens' custom. The American colonies might export certain specified or enumerated products, sugar, tobacco, cotton, indigo and other dyes, specklewood, only to each other or to England. Customs officers in the plantations were to have the same power as those in the realm, and plantation laws, which clashed with the Navigation Acts, were declared to be illegal, null and void, to all intents and purposes whatever. The system was rounded off by some lesser provisions, and in 1696, 
the Board of Trade was set up to administer it. It is impossible to decide exactly how successful the system was. According to British merchants, times were always bad, foreign competition always dangerous, even under the Navigation Acts, and since those acts were defined by vast numbers of smugglers, the merchants may not have been entirely wrong. However, some observations may be ventured. The mercantile system was selfish and nationalistic, arising from a condition of conflict, no doubt, but making that condition worse. According to C.M. Andrews, the greatest historian of colonial America. It fomented war in provoking an economic struggle among the commercial and industrial nations for place, power and wealth. It sacrificed the empire's periphery for its centre, and all loftier considerations to those of commerce and power. Against this, it can only be urged that rulers in the 17th and 18th centuries had to deal with the world as they found it. And mercantilism was at least a rational, and in many ways beneficial, response to trying circumstances. More particularly, the British system turned, as we have seen, on tropical and subtropical staple products. They were raised by plantation owners in the mainland colonies south of Pennsylvania and in the British West Indies, whose prosperity was made possible by the importation of vast numbers of African slaves, in itself a lucrative staple trade. There were some crucial differences between the mainland and island planters. The mainland planters, whose crops were less profitable, bought fewer slaves, a much higher proportion of them women, and treated them better, since replacements, for the dead or incapacitated, were expensive. The proportion of black slaves to free white was far, far greater on the island plantations, and so was discontent. The planters were, to a great extent, absentees. Consequently, imperial protection against rebellion as well as invasion was much more important to the islands than to the mainland. Secondly, sugar was incomparably the most valuable colonial crop, but the absentee planters were able to buy themselves into Parliament and the ruling class of landed gentlemen to form, in alliance with the sugar merchants, a powerful lobby known as the West India Interest. By contrast, tobacco planters were content to be colonists. They regularly exceeded their incomes in their attempts to live magnificently at home. Their credit was good, but they overstrained it. By the outbreak of the revolution, it is estimated they owed more than £4 million sterling to London. Britain throve on the system as she was meant to. She had become the staple for her colonies. All colonial produce passed through her ports in its quest for European customers, 
and she reaped the middleman's reward. She enjoyed a monopoly of the colonial market for manufacturers, which stimulated her interests and was independent of potentially hostile sources for supplies of such essential commodities as naval stores. Tar, pitch, rosin, turpentine, hemp, masts, yards, bowsprits. The slave trade was a risky and often unprofitable business to individuals, but it helped to make the fortune of Bristol and Liverpool. The Merchant Marine benefited from the Navigation Acts as planned, as thus furnished a reserve of trained seamen and seaworthy vessels most useful to the Royal Navy in times of war. The various custom duties brought in handsome revenue returns for the government, and places in the customs service were useful additions to the patronage. The trade and tax structure meant that there was a constant drain of bullion from the colonies to the realm, which appeased the constant mercantilist anxiety about a shortage of precious metals. Finally, the fences which Britain erected round her empire denied its products to her rivals. Decidedly, the mother country seemed to have little reason to complain of mercantilism. Nor was it so oppressive to the colonies as it may seem. Great Britain wanted her plantations to be contented and prosperous, and took steps to make them so. The tobacco colonies of the South mainland, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, were allowed to trade only with Britain, but they were given a monopoly of the British market, heavy duties being placed on foreign leaf, and British farmers being forbidden to grow any. Similar advantages were given to South Carolina, which grew rice and indigo, and of course to the Sugar Islands, which otherwise would have suffered from the competition of cheap French sugar. The colonies of the North Mainland, Pennsylvania to New Hampshire, had their own profitable place in the system. The British West Indies became dependent on them for provisions. New Englanders were encouraged by the imperial government to build and sail ships, and eventually supplied nearly a third of all British bosoms. Owning half the 3,000 involved in the colonial trade, Perhaps the colony's chief gain was in the political and military sphere. Britain, a careless mother, expected her children to be self-supporting. They were to be a source of profit, not expense, but with some consistency and whether the Navigation Act were obeyed or not. They often were not for an illicit trade with the French and Spanish colonies became a valuable source of trade to the North Americans, she did not interfere with their internal government, beyond occasionally disallowing a colonial law, and she protected them against France and Spain. The colonies were well aware of political and military problems, and that islands and plantations could change hands at peace conferences. To them, therefore, 
It mattered little that no large British force was sent to America until the Seven Years' War. They were protected equally, or better, by the mother country's victories on European battlefields, or at sea. For the rest, they were sure of some assistance and support in their perennial struggle against the French and Spanish supported Indians. The Board of Trade could plan intelligently, and sometimes rescue a desperate situation. For example, the incompetent heirs of the founders and proprietors of South Carolina declared under Queen Anne to be the frontier country of all Her Majesty's plantations on the main in America, might have been left to ruin their province and enjoy their charter in peace for far longer had not the Yamasee Indians in 1715, in a war arising out of the misdeeds of the Indian traders, shown vividly how a weak government in one colony could injure the whole British position in North America. The war wiped out the Indian trade of the Carolinas for a time, and revived French and Spanish strength in the area. The southern flank of the British might be turned, or their traders and settlers confined to the coastal plains. The colony survived, just, but its defence had clearly become too important to be left to incapable private management. So, the Board of Trade endorsed a revolt of the settlers in 1719, and in 1729, the proprietors were bought out. South Carolina being taken into the king's hand, becoming a crown colony of the usual type, with a crown-appointed governor. On the whole, then, the mercantilist system must be reckoned to have fulfilled the purposes of its makers. It made the prosperity of all parts of the empire possible. Its drawbacks were its inefficiency and incompleteness. The Board of Trade could never induce Parliament to make it watertight, and the customs officers were too few, too ill-paid, too corrupt to plug the gaps. It was, economically, increasingly obsolete. But its destruction was to come from quite a different causes. End quote. What Brogan is referring to here, of course, is the Seven Years' War, which we will not cover next time. Having had a super zoomed out look of the British imperial system in the mid-18th century, in particular at mercantilism, next time we zoom back into North America. While we won't get as lost in the trees as we have been, we do need to take the colonies collectively up to 1756, when the conflict would break out. After all, we haven't even mentioned Georgia so far in the series. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember there are lots of things you can do online. You can leave an iTunes review if you are so inclined. You can buy our book, A History of the United States, available exclusively on Amazon. You can subscribe to the membership feed on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can follow me on social media. The best place is Twitter, at HistoryJamie. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.